Tonight we begin our study in Jeremiah. We're going to cover chapters 49 and 50. Let me tell you right at the outset, this is going to be a long Bible study, and it's not necessarily going to be a fun Bible study. Any preacher would much rather spend a lot of time on John 3.16 or the book of Ephesians and our inheritance in Christ, but we believe something here at Calvary Chapel. I'm sure you believe it. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and given by Him for the edification and the blessing of the saints. All of it. And so there are important things for us to learn in Jeremiah chapter 49 and 50, even though it's not entirely pleasant. This is about God's judgment against the nations. And we're going to see, first of all, in chapter 49, his judgment against multiple nations. And then in chapter 50, it's going to get focused against Babylon. So let's jump right into it. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 1. Against the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? Jeremiah chapter 49 is made up of prophecies of judgment against several nations that surrounded Israel or were in the general region. We begin with the Ammonites. The Ammonites lived in the area on the east side of the Jordan River, north of the Moabites. Their lands are included in what is today modern-day Jordan. Matter of fact, the capital of Jordan is called Ammon, Ammon, after the Ammonites. Uh, they, they, They were often in conflict with the Israelites. Now notice the words here in verse 1. Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad? Milcom was the god of the Moabites, or at least one of their gods. And Milcom is here used as a representation of the Moabites. Basically, it's asking, why does a pagan god occupy the land that was destined for God's people? God inherited the land of the Ammonites to be given to the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River. It was given to Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Now, Milcom, who's also known as Molech, lived, so to speak, in that land, and it acted as if Israel's inheritance was invalid. I just want us to pause here for a brief minute and notice this picture here, where it just simply, has he no heir? Has he no sons? Why then does an usurper occupy the inheritance of God's people? Now, the reason why I bring that up is I wonder how many times that would be said of a believer today. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, we could say there's a similar wonder today when God's people forsake their inheritance and do not possess it. God has given us a spiritual inheritance as his people. It's just as real as the inheritance that was supposed to be for Gad and Reuben and Manasseh in the land of Ammon. But friends, our inheritance is spiritual. We have been given every spiritual blessing that is ours in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. This is our inheritance as believers. And I wonder if there's not similar wonder in the spiritual realm. If the angels don't discuss it sometimes, why do they not occupy their inheritance? Israel did not occupy all their inheritance under God's old covenant. The believer under the new covenant should certainly occupy all the inheritance that God has for them. God has an inheritance of peace and power and love in Jesus. It's an inheritance that you and I, his followers, should actually possess and no one should take away from us. 
In any regard, verse 2 begins the warning of coming judgment against the Ammonites. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. O wail, Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you and daughters of Rabbah, gird yourself with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the walls, for Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and with his people, princes together. So God will cause, verse 2, an alarm of war. There's going to come war against the Ammonites, the devastating judgment that will be brought by the conquering army of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, once the Ammonites have been judged, look what happens in verse 2. Then Israel shall take possession of their inheritance. God promised a day when Israel would possess these lands on the east side of the Jordan River. I just want you to think about the promote geopolitically. Right now, these lands on the east side of the Jordan River do not belong to Israel, not by any means. They belong to Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan. God promised that one day those lands would belong to the kingdom of Israel. Friends, I believe we await the fulfillment of that. I believe it'll come someday. I don't know when, I don't know how, but God will fulfill his promise and those lands where the Ammonites once lived, where the kingdom of Jordan now is, will one day be given over to Israel once again and it says, verse 3, Milcom shall go into captivity. You see, the Babylonians would not only conquer the land and the peoples of the Ammonites, but also their national deity, Milcom, all together with her priests and her people. You see, in the ancient world, when one nation conquered another nation, it was seen as the victory of the conquering nation's gods over the conquered nation's gods. Now, there's much in the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures in general that shows that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, he showed that he was not just like the national deities of the other nations. So when the Babylonians conquered the Israelites, when they conquered Judah, it did not show that Yahweh was inferior. It showed that Yahweh brought the Babylonians to discipline his own people. But it wasn't that way among the Moabites. Continuing on now to verse 4. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts. From all those who are around you, you shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. Now notice this in verse 4. It says that the Ammonites boasted in their valleys. They believed that their geography would help them against the Babylonians, but it was a poorly placed trust. The same could be said when it says that they trusted in their treasures. All would fail them in the day of judgment. And God says, verse 5, that he would bring fear upon them. And in verse 5, they shall be driven out. And within a hundred years of Jeremiah's prophecy, the Arabian tribes came into the region, they overwhelmed the Ammonites, and they were no more a kingdom of their own. But notice as verse 6, God says, afterwards I will bring back. In the midst of judgment, God had mercy and some promise for the Ammonites, even for them. We don't know exactly how this was fulfilled. Maybe with the genetic descendants of the Ammonites coming into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. It may very well be that. But ladies and gentlemen, 
God promised that he would not utterly forsake the Ammonites and their people. Now, in verse 7, we shift from the Ammonites and we work our way south to the Edomites. Notice this, verse 7. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him. That time I will punish him. Now, again, we move southward from the Ammonites to the Edomites. The Edomites were also a cousin nation to Israel, something like the Moabites. Their founder was Esau, the son of Isaac, the twin brother of Jacob. They lived in the lands east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea toward the south mountains and the deserts. And their wisdom would escape them. Verse 7, is wisdom no more in Timon? Part of God's judgment against the Edomites would be to bring foolish leadership to the nation. Let me pause just for a moment on that point. Could it not be? Now, I, I don't know if politically speaking you are pleased or displeased with the leadership of our nation. But if you are displeased, I invite you to consider the fact that it may be part of a judgment of God. It may be. I'm not going to say it with certainty, but I will say that there have been times when God brought judgment to a people by giving them foolish and corrupt leadership. That's part of what he did to the Edomites. That's why he says, is wisdom no more in Timon? Has it vanished from there altogether? And then he says, dwell in the depths. In other words, flee, get away as much as you can. Get out of there. You got to escape this judgment that's going to come upon you. Why? Verse 8, I will bring the calamity of Esau upon them. The calamity of Esau refers to Esau's sense that he lost everything everything when the birthright was given to Jacob. God promised that the Edomites would also feel that way when they lost everything with the judgment to come upon them. Verse 9, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they've had enough? But I have made Esau bear I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His descendants are plundered, his brethren and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them a lie, and let your widows trust in me. Now, in most everything, when people are taking things, they leave a little bit behind. That was the process of gleaning grapes in verse 9. God says when judgment comes upon the Edomites, they would be completely stripped bare. Nothing would be left behind. But God would give them some preservation. Verse 11, leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them aligned. God would do something to preserve the fatherless children and the widows of the Edomites. Nevertheless, there was going to be a judgment for the people of Edom. Look at it here in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. 
For indeed, I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart. O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though I make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. Now notice this, we have the picture here in verse 12 that God promised that the Edomites would drink the cup of God's judgment. And it was easy for the Edomites to kind of ignore this, to not take it seriously. Because the mountainous and wilderness terrain of Edom gave the Edomites many natural advantages. And they proudly thought that they would escape the judgment that came upon other peoples. They thought, sure, the Babylonians are invading the land, but we can escape their judgment. God says, no, you shall drink of it. The judgment will come upon you. Verse 16 says, your fierceness has deceived you, O you who dwell in the clefts of the rock. Edom's trust in the courage of their soldiers, who were very courageous and fierce, and in their defensible territory, all that trust would be broken. And they thought of themselves as being as high and safe as the eagle, but God promised to bring them down from there. Matter of fact, there's a very interesting mention there in verse 16, where it refers to the clefts of the rock. The rock, or rocks, refer to what is later called Selah, or the city of Petra, their capital city and chief fortress of the Edomites. God says, that's going down, and I will conquer that. And by the way, today you go to the rock city of Petra, and it's a beautiful place to go. It's a striking tourist spot, but that's all it is. Edom is gone. They have been defeated. Verse 17, Edom shall also be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord. No one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong, but I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that is proposed against the inhabitants of Timon. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places desolate with them. The earth shakes at the noise of their fall and at the cry its noise is heard at the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. The heart of the mighty men of Edom in that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. Again, a poetic and powerful description of the judgment that will come upon the Edomites, a judgment that they could not escape. It would be as devastating as the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah described in verse 18. And it'll come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan, by the way, which is a very fitting description of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. Nebuchadnezzar himself was represented by a lion and that judgment would surely come against them. Okay, that ends the judgment against the Edomites. So in chapter 49, we've had against the Ammonites, against the Edomites, now against the Syrians, the city of Damascus. Look at it here, verse 23. Against Damascus. 
Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There's trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Verse 23 describes judgment against Damascus, which was the chief city of the Syrians, one of Israel's neighbors to the north. Damascus, by the way, is one of the oldest continuously occupied cities of the world. And we see here in verse 24, Damascus has, not, has grown feeble. You see, in comparison to the might of the rising Babylonian Empire, Damascus and the Syrians would become weak and feeble. They could not stand against the coming judgment and they would respond in pain and in sorrow. By the way, it's sort of interesting today that Syria is a complete mess. They have an autocratic and a tyrannical leader in Assad, a bloodthirsty man who slaughters many. Uh, you have rebels such as ISIS against them. You have chaos and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, dead because of the brutal and bloody civil war there. Now, I cannot say that this is a fulfillment of this particular prophecy because it seems as if this particular prophecy was fulfilled back in the Babylonian invasion. But it may be that there is still judgment against the Syrians to be had. Continuing on in verse 25, it says, Why is the city of praise not deserted, my city of joy? Therefore... Her young men shall fall in the streets and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Now notice, God gave honor to this ancient city of Damascus, calling it the city of his joy. And he noted that it would not be deserted of population like other major cities in the surrounding nations. The Syrians back in Jeremiah's day, were conquered by the Babylonians, but the Babylonians did not exile and depopulate the Syrians as they did to other nations, and this was predicted and described by Jeremiah. But yet, verse 26, they would be defeated militarily completely. All the men of war shall be cut off. They would suffer great defeat and death, and even the palaces of Ben-Hadad would be burned yet they would not be exiled in the same manner as Judah and the surrounding nations. Now, we've had Ammon, Edom, and Syria. Now we come to the Arabian peoples of Kedar and Hazor. Look at what we mean here in verse 28. Against Kedar and against the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall strike. Thus says the Lord... Arise, go up to Kedar and devastate the men of the east. This speaks about the kingdoms of Kedar and Hazor. And there may be a third group described in verse 28, the men of the east. Commentators divide whether two groups or three groups are described. And basically, these are the Arabic people who dwelled in that region some of them being nomads, that seems to be the people of Kedar, and some of them dwelled in cities, those seem to be the people of Hazor. Verse 29, their tents and their flocks they shall take away, they shall take themselves their curtains, all their vessels and their camels, for they shall cry out to them, fear is on every side, flee, get far away, dwell in the depths. O inhabitants of Hazor, says the Lord, 
For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you and has conceived a plan against you. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars, dwelling alone. Their camels shall be for booty and the multitude of the cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds, to the farthest corners, and I will bring their calamity from all its size, says the Lord. Hazor shall be a dwelling for jackals, a desolation forever. No one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. Again, God describing the judgment that would come upon these Arabic peoples of Kedar and Hazor through the army of Babylon that would come in a few years against them. I just need to pause right here. I don't know how you're doing through this Bible study right now. I, I, I don't know if you are, well, look, let me just be straight. I don't know if you're bored silly. Maybe you're like, what? Kedar, Hazor, Ammon, Edom, who cares? L- listen, let me just bring it to you this way. These are ancient peoples who lived and breathed just as you and I do right now, and they had to face the judgment of God. God brought his judgment against them just as he promised. What chapters like this should do is not only make us see the certainty of God's word and that it will be fulfilled, but it should also make us breathe and take We are under the judgment of God unless we find our refuge in Jesus Christ, his Savior. Judgment came against others. It will come against us if we are not prepared. Let's take a look at the judgment that came against Elam, described starting at verse 34. That'll conclude this chapter 49. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam I will bring the four winds against the four quarters of heaven and scatter them towards those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. Here he speaks against the most distant nation of all those we've considered, the people of Elam. Elam is the ancient name for some of the peoples of ancient Persia, modern-day Iran. The Persians, or the people of Elam, were at first allies to the Babylonians, but later they conquered the Babylonian Empire. This prophecy is spoken of their eventual conquest and fall. Now, the the Elamites were more than 200 miles east of Babylonian. This is by far the most distant nation that Jeremiah refers to. But I just want you to understand something. They're not out of God's reach. And say, well, they're so far away from Israel. They're so far away from Jeremiah. Doesn't matter. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They lived far from Israel, but they did not live outside the sovereignty of God. And God speaks to them as well. He says in verse 35, I'll break the bow of Elam. The Elamite soldiers were known for their brilliant archery. And God says, those bows in which they trusted for their military might, I'm going to break them. And I'm going to, verse 36, scatter them towards all the earth. Look now at verse 37. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and bring those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and I will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord. But it shall come to pass in the latter days 
that I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. Now it's very interesting in verse 37. He says, I will bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger. But it's interesting, God doesn't say that it would come from the Babylonians. When judgment eventually came upon the people of Elam, it came from the Greeks, not from the Babylonians. God would assert his rule, his throne over them, but it would not come through the Babylonians. The Babylonians never conquered Elam, but Jeremiah never said they would. He just said that they would be conquered, not who would do it. But did you notice there in verse 39, I'm sure this caught your eye, it says, in the latter days, I will bring back the captives of Elam. Now, you might yawn just a little bit and say, well, you know, these kind of promises have been there a lot. We've seen them already. God promises to bring back captives or to, 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 to restore in some way even these pagan nations. No, the one thing that I find kind of fascinating about that is simply this, that Acts chapter 2 verse 9 tells us that among the audience that heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were people from Elam. Isn't that great? Presumably, some people from Elam put their trust in Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. And that means that God was not finished with the people of Elam, that he would do his work in and for them and bring them to his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. Now, this brings the end of chapter 49. Don't relax yet. We're going to cover chapter 50, which is a long chapter. But before we get into chapter 50, chapters 50 and 51 deal with Babylon. You see, God spoke judgment against all these different nations, against Egypt, against Philistia, against the Moabites, against the Ammonites, against the Edomites, against the Elamites, against all these various peoples. But don't miss this. Babylon will have a special place. But before we talk about Babylon, starting in the next chapter, Philip Ryken, the commentator, has a good summary of this chapter, chapter 49, and what it teaches us about God's judgment. Let me read you this quote. I think it's excellent. It said, Wealth did not save the Ammonites. They were not able to buy their way out of judgment. Wisdom did not save the Edomites, nor did their military might. Fame did not save the Arameans because God is no respecter of persons. Independence did not save the Bedouins. God found them in the wilderness and destroyed them just the same. Weapons did not save the Elamites. Do you get the picture there? God's judgment is inescapable. And it's not just inescapable for the bad people. It's inescapable for everyone. The only way we can find refuge against the judgment of God is to find it in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, there's only two places of judgment. There's the judgment that mankind will be resolved in hell or at the cross of Calvary. At Calvary where Jesus Christ put himself in the place of judgment for all who would put their trust in him. That is the place of salvation from judgment. But judgment is inescapable, and all sin will be judged. You can decide whether or not you want your sin to be judged by you personally or in you personally in hell, or whether your sin will be accounted as judged by the work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. Judgment is certain. It can only be escaped in Jesus. Now on to chapter 50, which, as I said, is a long chapter, 
but it's not the only one. Chapters 50 and 51 deal with the judgment among Babylonians. We're going to deal with chapter 50 this week and chapter 51 next week. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 50. The word of the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim and do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces, for out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. Babylon, which is a city, and associated with the empire of the Babylonians. And the people of Babylon, the Chaldeans, are now spoken to regarding the judgment of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to think about this because I need you to think about it very carefully. Throughout the entire book of Jeremiah, God has said that judgment would come upon Judah, Jerusalem, and the surrounding nations through the Babylonians. And it would have been entirely fair for somebody to say, yeah, but what about the Babylonians? Are they God's little angels? God says, no, 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 no. I've got judgment reserved for them as well. We've got two long, in-depth chapters that deal with the judgment that's going to come upon the Babylonians. That's why it says in verse 1, Against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans, verse 2, declare among the nations. God wanted all the nations to hear about the judgment to come against the Babylonians. Verse 2, they should know Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed. You see, the gods, the pagan deities that the Babylonians honored, they would be broken, they would be humiliated, and the city would be broken in pieces. Now, there's something I need to talk about here in verse 2, where it says, their idols are humiliated. That phrase, her idols, it's an unusual one. And I need to find a way to speak about this delicately. The word there in the Hebrew is not a delicate word. It actually means balls of excrement. It's applied to pagan idols in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in 1 Kings. And Ezekiel uses the word time and time again. Ladies and gentlemen, God refers to the idols of Babylon as little balls of poop. That's what he's talking about. There's no other way to say it. He's not only announcing judgment, he's mocking them along the way. You little poop balls judgment is coming upon you why verse three for out of the north a nation comes against her god used babylon to bring judgment against judah and other nations but when the time was right god would use a nation out of the north to judge chaldea and make her land desolate verse four in those days and at that time says the lord the children of israel shall come they and the children of judah together With continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God and shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will never be forgotten. Pause right here. Verse 4 sees an abrupt changing of the focus. Verses 1, 2, and 3 announce judgment against Babylon, her cities, 
and her poop ball gods. That's what it's talking about. In verse 4, the gaze suddenly turns over to the people of God. And as it turns over to the people of God, we see a description of restoration. It's almost as if God says, all right, I'm just getting warmed up in my announcement of judgment against Babylon, but I don't want anybody to think that I have neglected my people. No judgment against Babylon, restoration for my people. Verse four, in those days and at that time, Jeremiah connected the coming judgment upon Babylon with the restoration of Israel and Judah. They would return to God with repentance, that is continual weeping, and they would seek the Lord their God. Now friends, we've spoken about this many times. That there is this principle that we often find in the scriptures regarding prophecy. Where a prophecy is given and it has a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. The near fulfillment of this was when Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and under the Persians, the Israelites were allowed to go back to the land. That's the near fulfillment. But there is a greater fulfillment of this. When Babylon the Great will be judged. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't separate Babylon that Jeremiah speaks about from the Babylon spoken of in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, Babylon the Great, that will one day befall and, and will probably be connected in some way to Babylon of the Old Testament. But this representation of the world in both its commercial and spiritual and, and just simply worldly aspects, that that's going to fall. And in that day, there will be a massive turning to the Lord among the people of Israel. This is a prophecy with both a near and a distant fulfillment. Both the judgment of Babylon and the restoration of Israel are prophesied here and have a near fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment in the very last days. And they will come and repent the people of Israel with continual weeping. Did you see that in verse 4? It's also spoken of in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And they're going to come back to the Lord. Verse 5, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces towards it. Part of the restoration of Israel will be gathering them back into the land of which we see a foreshadowing, a precursor even now. And they will say, verse 5, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. They would come back to God on his terms, not on their own terms. Friends, that's a glorious thing to come back to God, but to come on his terms, his perpetual covenant. This describes in the ultimate sense the regathering and the restoration of Israel with Babylon fallen and them coming back into relationship with God under the terms of the new covenant and the fulfillment of it. By the way, this reminds us that the believer has a relationship with God based on something that has a tremendous foundation, a perpetual covenant. It is a powerful description of the great covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ called the new covenant. I need to read to you something that I read from Charles Spurgeon on this. I'll just read to you the quote. He's speaking of how believers should regard the idea of covenant. I'll just read you the quote, and I think you'll get it. He says, I rejoice in those old Scottish books about the covenant. 
covenant truth was so inwrought into the Scottish heart that Scottish peasants, as well as divines, talked about it perpetually. You remember the good old cottager's grace over his porridge? I cannot repeat it in pure Doric, but it ran like this. Lord, I thank thee for the porridge. I thank thee for an appetite for the porridge. And I thank thee most of all that I have a covenant right to the porridge. Only think of that, a covenant right to the porridge. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I would have loved to hear Spurgeon say that and try to imitate a Scottish accent as he said it. But can you think of a poor person in a Scottish cottage saying, Lord, I thank you for the porridge. I thank you that I have an appetite for the porridge. I thank you that I have a covenant right to the porridge. That's simply a dramatic way of expressing a truth that everything we have with God, we have by covenant. We have by his solemn and secure promise. It's not just us wishing. It's not just us hoping. He's made a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. And here we find a reference to that covenant. Now continue on in verses 6 and 7. The need for their restoration. They say, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They've turned them away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They've forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, we have not offended because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of the fathers. You see, here speaking through Jeremiah the prophet, Yahweh looks at his people tenderly as lost sheep betrayed by their shepherds, yet their poor leadership of their shepherds led to God's people being turned away and scattered from mountain to hill with no resting place. Ladies and gentlemen, when God's people are treated poorly by their leaders, God sees from heaven and he cares. You can be sure that God has some discipline appointed for those poor shepherds, but he doesn't forget his people in the midst of it. Now, verse 8, we turn our focus back to Babylon. Move from the midst of Babylon, go out from the midst of the Chaldeans, and be like rams before the flocks, for behold, I will raise and cause to come against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like that of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain, and Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. You see, there was going to come against the Chaldeans, against Babylon, a great army that God would rise from the north. And just as they had been used as an instrument of judgment against many, God would raise up an instrument of judgment against them. Now verse 11. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nation shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert because of the wrath of the Lord. She shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes to Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. Put yourself in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord 
take vengeance on her. As she has done, so do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Now look, we, we could go in and take apart this verse by verse, but you get the sense of it, don't you? Traumatic, vivid, devastating judgment was apportioned to Babylon. Now there is one thing that I want to spend a little time taking a look at. Look at verse 15 with me where it says, her foundations have fallen, her walls are thrown down. These phrases and similar phrases found in Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 are an interesting challenge to understanding prophetic fulfillment. Look at verse 15 again. Look at it carefully. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. Does this not describe the complete destruction of Babylon? Of course it does. If the walls are thrown down, if the foundations are fallen, then Babylon as a city, Babylon as an empire, is completely destroyed. Such as happened to Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered it, or such as happened to Jerusalem when the Romans conquered it in 70 AD. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't how it happened when the Persians and the Medes conquered Babylon. They conquered the city, no doubt. Babylon fell, but the city was not destroyed. You know what this tells us? This tells us that this is another aspect of the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Let me put it to you this way. God is not done with Babylon. Babylon is not only a city in the scriptures, not only an empire, it is a concept, and it is the concept of the world. And this same terminology, the same heart is carried over into the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, where Babylon, in both its commercial and its spiritual aspect, is fallen and destroyed. Again, the great lesson of this is God is not finished with Babylon. And friends, I don't know how literal Babylon the city and how spiritual Babylon intersect and coincide. I don't really know. I can't describe that to you. But I can tell you this. God's not done with Babylon. And it's going to fall. And it's going to be found to be true. That her foundations have fallen and her walls are thrown down. When Cyrus the Mede conquered Babylon, it wasn't destroyed. The city was taken, the Babylonians were defeated, but the city was not destroyed. Verse 17. Israel is like scattered sheep. Stop right there. Isn't it fascinating? Again, Jeremiah will go back and forth. He'll talk about the devastation to come upon Israel, excuse me, upon Babylon, but then he'll come back and speak very tenderly to Israel. And that's what we do again here in verse 17. Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. For the, first the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has broken his bones. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land. As I have punished the king of Assyria... But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. 
Remember those scattered sheep of Israel who had the bad shepherd spoken of earlier in the chapter? God says, I'm going to restore. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to bring him back into the land which we see fulfilled at least in part in the glorious reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. But God will punish Babylon. But verse 19, I will bring back Israel to his home. And look at the really wonderful promise in verse 20. The iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. Friends, that's new covenant talk. That's Israel returning to their Messiah and having their sins completely taken away in the sacrifice of their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, on the cross. And God says, I'll look for their sins, but I won't be able to find it. That's God's promise to every believer, every participant in the new covenant. If you were to ask God, yeah, you you know that sin I committed, but but I repented of it, I brought it before Jesus and his cross. God says, I don't remember it. I looked for it. I can't even find it anymore. That will be fulfilled unto a repentant Israel that comes under the new covenant, but it's fulfilled right now for you. If you are a believer in God under the new covenant, this promise is for you. Continuing on now, verse 21. Go up against the land of Marathim, against it, and against the inhabitants of Pekod. These are regions in Babylon. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. For you have been found and also caught because you've contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the farthest border. Open her storehouses. Cast her up as heaps of ruins and utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe is them for the day has come the time of her punishment. Again, friends, we could go and we could take this apart piece by piece, but you get the impression, don't you? Slaughter, devastation, destruction is to come upon Babylon as the judgment of the Lord. Now verse 28. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow and camp against it all around Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work. According to all she has done, do to her. For she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets. All her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you, The most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his sitters and will devour all around him. Again, notice, the core reason for judgment to come against the Babylonians, it's found in verse 29, for she has been proud against the Lord. This is the root of Babylon's sin. Pride against the Lord, exalting themselves. Now, There's something else I need you to consider here. We see the announcement 
of complete devastation against Babylon. Did you get that back when we talked in verse 15 about her walls being thrown down and the foundations being fallen? You say, well, why didn't that happen in the days of Babylon? Do you remember the very proud king of Babylon and the Babylonian empire named Nebuchadnezzar? And do you remember what happened to him in the book of Daniel when he became so proud and thought that everything he accomplished was of his own hand? God made him a madman. And for seven years, he went about as if he were a wild ox. He was under some bizarre mental illness or delusion. He ate grass. He lived outside. He thought he was a wild or a domesticated, a, a wild ox. Nebuchadnezzar repented and turned to the Lord. It may be the reason why God did not destroy the city of Babylon. He conquered it, but he did not destroy it. And merely reserved that devastation for the final days, for the last days. It may have been a response to Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. She has been proud against the Lord. That was the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a whole. And when they humbled and repented themselves... God may have lessened the judgment that came against them. I find that a very provocative thought. But look at verse 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel who were oppressed, along with the children of Judah, all who took them captive and held them fast, they refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. Again, we have this back and forth thing going on in Jeremiah chapter 51. Judgment against Babylon, hope for Israel. Judgment against Babylon, hope for Israel. But this is what I want you to understand. Notice that phrase. It's a very powerful phrase in verse 34. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. Assyria and Babylon took Israel and Judah captive and they held them. But you know what? Israel has a redeemer. Now, this is drawing on the ancient concept and the Hebrew concept of the kinsman redeemer, the goel, the person in the family that would avenge wrongs done to the family. God says, I am Israel's kinsman redeemer. I am Israel's goel. Don't mess around with me. Because if you take them captive, I will bring judgment against you. And that's exactly what he did. All who dare to trouble Israel, and I would say it in the modern world today, they should remember their Redeemer is strong. The nations of the world better take notice that God is the kinsman Redeemer of Israel. He is committed to preserving them and championing them their cause. It's true both in the ancient world and in today. Now, uh, let's continue on. We're back to judgment against Babylon. Verse 35. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers and they will be fools. A sword is against the mighty men and they will be dismayed. A sword is against the horses, against the chariots and against all the mixed peoples who are in their midst and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters and they will be dried up for it is the land of carved images and they are insane with their idols. Again, a very vivid description of God's sword and God's complete judgment to come against the Babylonians. By the way, don't you like that last phrase in verse 38? 
They are insane with their idols. How that could be said of people today. Insane with their idolatry. In any regard, verse 29, excuse me, 39. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with jackals and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt with from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor man dwell in it. Friends, do you see the lesson there? Just as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, he would destroy Babylon as well. Verse 41. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of them. Pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is the chosen man that I may appoint to be over? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Again, God announcing to the Babylonians, the judgment is coming and you can't stand against me. Friends, I hate to sound a little bit like a broken record, but let me just say it again. We find the overriding theme in these chapters is the inescapable judgment of God. And if God's judgment is inescapable, We need to find refuge in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's conclude the chapter with these last couple of verses, verses 45 and 46. Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of their flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them at the noise of the taking of Babylon The earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. Do you know what he's getting at in those last couple verses? That the earth should learn something from the judgment that came upon Babylon. Ladies and gentlemen, God is a righteous judge and he will judge all sin and all sinners. You don't have to personally experience the judgment of God to learn from it. You can learn by what he did to Babylon. You can learn from it right now. And do what? Go over to Jesus himself and receive the forgiveness and the rescue that he offers as the judged one. I heard a story, and it's probably not a true story. It's probably just a preacher's story, but it's a good story about a man and a son who were out hunting. And the climate was kind of dry, and the brush was kind of, you know, dry and burnable around them. When off in the distance, they saw a brush fire coming towards them very suddenly. And the father looked at the terrain around them, and he instantly understood that brush fire is moving so fast, the wind is driving it in our direction, we cannot outrun it, we cannot find shelter from it, we will be burned up by that brush fire rushing towards us. And so you know what he did with his son? He gave his son some matches. And he and his son both instantly lit matches and burned an area around them as quickly as they could. Then when that area was burned already, 
They crouched down in the burned out area. And what did the wildfire do when it reached them? It burned around them because the area had already been burned. It had already been burned over. Therefore, the wildfire did not fit them. Listen, the judgment of God is like a wildfire coming your way. The only refuge you and I have is to go to the burned out area of Jesus himself. You see, the cross is the place where judgment has already been poured out upon. It's already been burned over by the judgment of God. Therefore, you are safe and secure there when the fires of judgment come around you. You need to go to the place where God's judgment has already been poured out, the burned over zone. There you are safe from the fire of God's judgment. We can learn from Babylon. We can learn from these other nations and escape the judgment of God ourselves. Father in heaven, that is our earnest wish, our great desire, that not only we would have confidence in your word as we see what you predicted with the nations coming to pass. Yes, Lord, your word is sure, and we believe it. We see prophecy fulfilled, and we say, yes, God, you you have truly spoken to us. But, Lord, it's not only that. These chapters, Lord, they drive us to look to Jesus and to put our confidence in him. Lord, we want our sin to be remembered no more. We want our sin to be forgotten. So we put our trust in Jesus and we look to him as the one who has already been judged for our sin. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for the warnings of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.